I had this conversation with uh, Mikhail, my CEO, a couple of weeks ago. I've been always pushing the idea of inclusivity. I want to be inclusive in our decision making and our planning. I'm actually stepping away from that for next year. And that might sound like an um, unpopular decision, but what I found is inclusivity is also slow as hell. So it means we need to talk about a whole bunch of shit all the time. Most of the time, we're still doing it anyway, we found based on some of the decisions and the meetings we've had. And we could have probably gotten more done if we just went ahead and do it and then mess it up and then just get back on it and try something else. So we're going to run with experimentation first instead of inclusivity next year. So you'll, like, if it's a good idea, show me instead of let's talk about it and then write up a small business case. Like effort and resources and outcome. If there is no clear outcome that's gonna to contribute to Cabo 2023, not worth it. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right, so you are in for a treat with this episode. We've got Kevin Beeftink, who is the COO for Funalytics. He's Dutch. He actually has moved his family from the Netherlands over to Canada to operate the business. He used to run his own company. He was the CEO of a company. And his CEO coach, who was coaching him through a transition as he was winding down the business, ended up actually then hiring him as his COO. So he's kind of been a CEO before, run his own company for seven or eight years. He's a father of four kids. Interestingly enough, he and his wife had split up quite early on when they had a couple of young kids. And then a couple of years later, after being split up in the marriage, uh, they were both swiping right on Tinder and they both swiped right on each other and reconnected because they saw each other on Tinder and that was it happily ever after, ever since. So a uh, young marriage and successful family now and successful in business. Talks a lot about um, being a VC-funded company right now and how they're actually transitioning and making the pivot from being VC-funded to being profitable. A lot of focus around um, kind of measuring things and having systems in place for growth, predictability around growth. He's also got some really interesting insights in the marketing side of things because he runs this marketing agency called Funnelytics. Yeah, just some also some interesting, some interesting ideas and perspectives on being a COO who used to be a CEO as well, and just seeing the business from both sides of that table and from, from different lenses. So really interesting perspective. He also has a global team. All of their employees are global. So he'll bring an interesting perspective. You're going to love the interview. Kevin, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Really cool to be here. Yeah, good to hear from you again. Good to see you again. We uh, we get the benefit of getting to, to see each other over Zoom right now. You're also a CLO Alliance member as well. I'm curious, before we kind of dive into the content, what was it that got you to even think about joining the CLO Alliance? I'm curious where your, your head was there. I think it was two things. One, I wasn't a CEO before I became CEO. So I had no idea what the role meant. It just sounded cool. And the company was great. So I figured, let's just jump on this. I'm an operator at heart, definitely an integrator. If you read uh, Rocket Fuel, that's definitely my type of profile. But being able to find a group of peers that, as it turns out, also have such variety in their profiles, there's no stereotypical CEO at all. That's not a job. It's just a title. But being able to talk to people about that, learn about stuff, 
at the end of the day, most of us are integrators, I would think. Being able to talk about that from all these different angles across different industries. And you got like the CEO Alliance got recommended by someone uh, I trust a lot in making right decisions. Uh, a guy called Matthew Hunt, you know him. Matt, highly recommending you because, um, you know, obviously you guys work together in the past as well. He said, like, if you want to spend a little bit of money and do it right, you best do it with these guys. So I jumped on it. Nice. Where are you based out of, by the way? So I'm right now based out of Canada. I moved to Canada with my family about uh, six months ago now. So I'm actually originally from the Netherlands. So if I mess up my grammar or sentence structure, it's because I'm still a Dutchman. It just sounds like I know how to speak this language. I mess it up from time to time. And now you're six foot six like the rest of the Dutch or? Pretty much. So even if the snow is going to come down, I can probably still look across just a little bit here in Canada. Okay, I'm I'm six foot four and I've done paid speaking events in 26 countries. And the only time I've ever felt small was speaking at the Entrepreneurs Organization event in Amsterdam. And I walk into the room, I'm like, what the fuck are they feeding you people? Like every single person in the room is huge. All those people in the world. That's right. It's crazy. It's amazing. I love it over there too. I'm like a huge, huge fan. Um, all right. So you moved to Canada. What's the difference in your mind between the CEO and CEO? What have you noticed that's really different? You mentioned the integrator side, but are there other things do you think that are different? And then how do you think that the CEO and CEO need to show up differently day to day as well? The difference, I think, because there is no job description for either. It's a title. So I think it's more, I like our balance. I'm definitely an integrator. Mikhail, my CEO, is definitely a visionary. So I guess his job is to push. My job is to pull, which means that if he's setting the bar, um, I want to make sure that I take my team to meet it. So I guess it, to some extent, it, for the CEO to show up is to set the bar and state the vision and make it inspiring, aspirational, something to chase, and make sure we don't run out of money. And then my job is to spend it make it happen have you noticed yourself change at all and, and you and I are very similar this way where we are both entrepreneurs and we've also played the coo role as well have you noticed that you have changed in terms of your day-to-day the way that you're showing up as a coo now when you used to be a ceo yeah yeah i think when when you've got the financial responsibility of the company as your bottom line of whether you make it happen or not it changes your attitude towards things. I think you're a bit more aggressive, a bit sharper. My obligation to the company is to meet goals and make sure I cultivate the culture and the people to make it happen. And I was an agency owner for 12 years. So at the end of the day, we just chased projects and tried to close retainers. But that was about results and pushing for the next and the next and the next step. I didn't spend enough time building people and building a proper team at the time. What has definitely now shifted for me is having way more attention for the people that make it happen, being able to very consciously lead by example, create a culture that very much, I guess, matches a startup. Um, I, we're not a 16-hour workday type of startup. We work our asses off, but we also have families, so there's a nice balance there. Being able to make that happen and still book some very awesome results is um, the approach there has changed definitely a little bit. It's definitely been more people focused, more practical, and I've got more time to focus on the the makings of the the processes, the SOPs, and how things line up now. Like being able to very much put time into that, um, 
I think I mentioned this on a, on a CEO Alliance call actually the other day. The biggest impact I've had on companies has not been through effort. It's always been through structure. That's interesting. The biggest impact you've had on companies has not been through effort. It's been through structure. What do you mean by that? Like SOPs, playbooks? You've got stuff? 40 to 80 hours a week yeah, to do stuff. Like, and then it stops, right? So you can be highly effective in 40 to 80 hours a week. That's no problem. But then the week's over and you can do that again next week. If you want to make an impact that's big enough, like you can have a lifestyle business and work your butt off. And that's great. You do 48 hours a week and make a ton of money. Awesome. But if you want to build something that makes a bigger impact, the effort you put in as a person is not going to be a reflection of the output. It's going to be the structure you create for the people you do it with that will help you get to the next stage of the business and keep growing and keep growing. Because so far, like every, like, just like right now, I know I said we weren't going to talk about it, but I've made a big decision to cut out our sales team and jump back in. So I'm taking calls, which is awesome. I've, I've been a salesperson for 18 years. So that's like natural to me. I love doing it. It's not going to make us grow to the next day. So I'm now rebuilding the sales mechanics and the structure so I can get someone else to then take over as a director to then run it. And I'm very good at building the structure, but I'm more effective to build that and then get someone to operate it because I'm good at that across a company, not in just one department, right? So if I create the structure instead of do the effort, I can have a way bigger impact. How do your people respond to that? It's interesting, right? I mean, we have a very, we're fully remote company. Um, and we have an amazing culture as well, which is really cool. Like, and you can just tell from meetings, the way we communicate, we're very direct, very open, very outspoken. Um, so when we need to let someone go, it's always two sides of the coin. On the one hand, it's always shit to let someone go because we, um, you know, we are unfortunate enough to like each other as well. That doesn't always help business, but we're a great group of people. So it's always a shitty conversation to have. On the other hand, we're also a startup. We want to make a fucking dent in the market. So if we, excuse the French there, but if we want to make something happen, we got to hustle and make big decisions. And we're still small enough as a company, we're under 20 people to know that one person makes or breaks the results we want to make, right? So, and to some extent, we all get that. And we all know stuff is or isn't working and we need to make decisions to make it happen. This was not working. And meaning you're an all remote company now as well. Are you all remote in North American employees or do you have employees that are global? Where's your employee oh, base? That's all global. So we've got people uh, in Eastern Europe. We've got um, our product manager is based out of Italy. We've got people traveling. So right now, um, our partner manager is working out of Colombia right now. So like, we've got people all over. And to us, we don't really care if you show up and deliver. Like, you can be in China, Japan, Australia. I don't really care. As long as you're there for crucial meetings and deliver on the job, I'm good with that. My challenge was I was in the Netherlands. I was working 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. because I wanted to be able to take meetings throughout the day. That did cost me my Saturday to catch up on some sleep. So I did. That was one of the biggest reasons for us to move here to Canada is for me to test my breath and get a little bit back into the nine to five or eight to six or seven to seven, depending on the day. Because um, that did get to me after doing that for a while. Yeah. how I'm curious. I was going to ask if, if being Dutch actually helped you on the global landscape as well of, of managing a business with global employees. And, but I'm curious how you 
manage time when you do have employees in all time zones then do you try to operate in north american time zone structure or do you just try to you yeah mostly like we have clients all over the globe as well right so that means our success team needs to also be pretty flexible what we see is we have morning people and and afternoon people and evening people so it also means that people when they are flexible with their calendar it's also easier to custom that to the clients we bring in at the end of the day, though, we have crucial company meetings between 9 and 5. It's mostly we have a, a all hands every day, 15 minutes at 9 a.m. And we have a weekly on Friday, also at 9 a.m. Any other company meetings are usually before 12 to try and make that feasible for everyone. You mentioned before we hopped on that you're a VC-backed company, and um, but you're making a bit of a, uh, of a shift of focus right now. Can you want to walk us through what's going on? So it's interesting when um, uh, so I had a bootstrapped agency that I built out for 12 years and then sold it. So my eye has always been on the money and profitability. So I didn't care about revenue. I cared about margin. Am I, are we making money or not? That's how we build a company. And one of the first things that uh, Mikhail, my CEO, said when he brought me in, he said, dude, you got to like keep in mind, we have money to burn, not to save. Like We took our money to go fast. So it's not just about making money, it's also about spending it. And what we're finding now is what I'm finding now is we we made some great decisions with that. We made some very bad decisions with that. Is that you want to build a business, you got to make money. And that is not revenue, that is still margins because that's what sets the actual value of a business. And it makes you less dependent on that as well, right? We can have way better conversations about a viable business that's making money by itself, that's not burning capital, then if we're dependent on external capital to keep coming in. So we decided let's show that we can do it so that if we wanna go fast again, that we have a track record that we can pull this off ourselves as well because it just sets us up for a way more interesting conversation. How much money have you raised as a company at this point? I think about 2.5 million. Okay. And have you run through that cash or are you still have are you still sitting on some of that cash? We still have some of that cash in the bank. Yeah. Right so interesting to, to be able to have that focus. How has that impacted your team and your your leadership? What do you think you guys are doing differently or saying differently? And how are you operating differently? Here's what's cool. We we decided to make that switch a couple months ago. Um, and we put our numbers on the table, all of it. So we talk finance with everyone in the company. We show them the numbers. We show them traction in terms of revenue, how much we're burning. We're now putting everyone's salary on a screen, but we are showing what we're spending basically uh, per team or per like specific part of the business. Um, and we set a target. We said, all right, um, we're going to go to Cabo in 23 or 24, and the year depends on you. We're taking the entire team there. But the pace at which we're getting there, this is the money we want to make. This is how quickly we can get there based on where we are now. If you can make or save us money in your job or enable us to get there faster, we will go to Cabo faster. So what can you do to contribute that? So now it's it's not about revenue targets. We made it more personal, something to aspire for as a team. Nobody cares about revenue. At the end of the day, revenue is just a number. It's monopoly money, right? Um, so we need to make it more tangible and make it more practical and say, you know what? We have a common goal. We all want to sit on the beach and you know, get massages by twins and palm leaves and whatnot. 
Um, so if that is something we aspire to, um, then let's put that on the board, put a number to it and chase it, which has shipped mindsets. Like um, we literally put up hashtag Cabo 2023 into Slack messages now. I made an impact on this. I lost a deal here. Um, so now I need to up my game so we can get back on it and get back to Cabo 2023. Like it's now a theme that keeps pushing us as something to rally around. Um, and being able to do that with actual numbers and knowing that what we spend or make has an impact on that has changed our, I, I would think changes how we operate across the country. Is there, are there any numbers that you don't um, open up? Like, do you actually disclose the financials? Do you, or the, the profitability? Do you disclose your salaries? What, are there any areas? Outside of salaries. So that's the one thing we don't share. So we do lump that up. Uh, we share everything. So cash in hand, like all of that. That's all, that's all on the board. And you take the you take the team through the P and L on a monthly basis. Do you follow any any like the great game of business Jack Stacks um, model with that, or did you just kind of create your own model for the open book financials? Started with um, with EOS at first. We shipped that up a little bit. We so it's interesting. We I put the entire company on a two week sprint across all teams. Engineering our engineering team was already on on a working on sprint basis. Late last year, we said, we're going to move all of us into a two-week sprint. So now, um, at this stage, we're on weekly sprints because iterations are, we're a small enough company to make that really quick. So we set aspirational goals for the quarter. We plan for projects two, three weeks ahead, and that's it. And do you operate with a budget? Yes. Yeah. It's interesting how um, you mentioned aspirational goals. I was trying to talk to a company about this recently and saying that you need to have a budgeted number and an aspirational goal, right? The budgeted number is come hell or high water, this is what we're hitting. And we're going to budget our expenses based on that. And if revenue is less, we're going to have to make some cuts. We're going to drive towards these aspirational goals or drive towards these additional targets. And if we get to those, we might start spending more to continue that growth as well. But they didn't. They, they didn't originally understand the difference between those two, and I think they're critical. Do you, how do you explain though the differences to your employees when you know you have a budgeted revenue number and a goal that you're shooting towards? Do you miss on the on the aspirational goals or? So I had a hard time bringing that across as well. Um, I mean, we can set the bar and just tell them, wouldn't it be great if we made this happen? But that doesn't resonate really well. It resonates when you know it's going to be an outcome for the valuation of the business and that impact you as a person, which is not a connection everyone in the company will make. So now that we've connected it to this Cabo 2023 goal, we put a number to it. If we aspire not to this valuation or revenue goal, if we aspire to go in September, not in February, here's what we got to do. Now it gets practical, right? And now, I mean, the, the realistic goal is we want to be profitable. So that means we push for that. And that is a target we have to hit based on the strategy we laid out. The aspirational goal is we get there this quick. So then we can go to Cabo. So now it's, it's more tangible. And now it's something we can actually rally around because I've had a very hard time managing and holding people accountable to arbitrary numbers. No, like at the end of the day, if it doesn't directly impact you, people don't really care. You can talk all about being bought into a company's vision or not. We're still people that care about our own lives first beyond anything else. And if it doesn't impact you, it's not going to do anything. What's your vacation policy with your employees? Did you bring kind of the, the European model to vacations or where are you with that? Oh, uh, when I came into the into a Canadian company saying back in the Netherlands, we get at least five weeks off a year. 
Um, everyone's eyes lit up a little bit thinking, wow, wait, what? Five weeks? Uh, sure. Um, what was interesting, we we have an unlimited pay time off policy of quality, which in principle sounds good, but it's something I want to look at again in 2023. Um, the idea sounds great, but I need to push people to take time off. So it doesn't actually work that well. I'd rather set more specific numbers and manage on those numbers to actually make sure people take that time off. Because at the end of the day, we have a very committed team. They're not taking the time to look after themselves. They keep working. The, it's, it's a struggle point as well to try to actually coach and push people to take the time off, I find, too. Like, it's one thing to have a vacation policy. It's another thing to actually push people to take it, which is, is intriguing, too. So you talked about a little bit about leading by example. What does that mean for you? And, and how do you actually lead by example? I'm very much uh, an advocate of owning your mistakes. And I'm very, I'm Dutch, which apparently means I'm very direct as well, which is helpful. I try not, well, I have a type A personality, but it, which also means I definitely don't shy away from speaking my mind. If I see someone messed up, I'll tell them in one-on-one circumstances, obviously not as a group, but I want to call people out on their mistakes and then see how they respond to it. I ask them to then do the same. I'm an executive, so that hardly happens. So what I try and do is mess up and then write about it. So I just use Slack channel, our company communications channel, and I mess up a deal. I should have pushed to get to know the decision-making unit. It was this week. Talked to a guy, super excited, 25 minutes into a call, looking to schedule next call, done, let's do it. Two days later, he canceled the call. I'm like, dude, you were so excited, but I didn't ask about his manager. So he was making the decision. I wrote up a story about how I messed that up um, and like detailed. And I'm pretty sure no one really cares about the intrinsic parts of all the sales mechanics that I apply. But putting thought into what I did wrong, writing it up, reflecting on it, and then sharing how I messed up, own the mistake I want to do better next time, and then putting hashtag Cabo2023 on the there to me, helps, I think helps inspire people to do the same, even if they're not writing about it, to at least rethink, what have I done wrong today? How can I do better tomorrow? I love the whole hashtag uh, Calvo2023 as well. By the way, do your employees get to bring a guest? Uh, I don't know yet, but if I'm going to say yes on this podcast, we'll probably need to make it happen, and I'll need to make sure that we do it. So Let me give you say a, yes. here's an interesting twist. So you got your Calvo2023 target, and then there's a bring a guest target, which is about 10 or 15% higher. That if you can go to that number, then we can also bring a guest as well. I'm excited now. It's I'm going to make this happen. It becomes a super baller move all of a sudden. That is so good. I'm going to run with that. Because now it's not even a company trip. Now it's like, holy shit, I get to go to combat with my acquaintances in the company. And I get to bring like my partner, my spouse, my friend. Pretty, and it's really not that expensive because the reality is they share a room. And um, so you make it as they have to share a hotel room, right? So they can have two beds or one bed. And it's just one extra flight. It's really not that much. Anyway, it's a, it becomes a real interesting additional driver too. I love how you're so practical about this as well, right? So you're not just pitching the idea. Then you're all, oh, and they need to share a room. And it, I, I love that type of thinking, right? That's awesome. I, I'm definitely running with that. Yeah, I'm an operator too, so. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's Cameron. Did you hear? That's right. I wrote another book. But this book isn't just another book for me. It's actually for you, the visionary CEO that is looking to grow and scale their business. 
This book is called The Second Command, Unleash the Power of Your COO. As a founder and CEO, you're used to making all the decisions, but the business you have isn't the one you envision. Heck, we've all been there. And the thing is, you know what you need. You need a COO, someone who can help you build the company you don't know how to build on your own. The Second in Command is your go-to guidebook when you're ready to scale up. I go through all the details in every aspect of the process, from knowing when you need to hire a COO, through identifying and hiring the right candidate, and successfully onboarding and working with them, and so much more. Go to CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to get your copy today. The Second in Command reveals the benefits COOs bring to companies and explores the many ways a COO mastermind or a COO forum can help grow the COO skills. You'll meet the types of COOs and understand the role each type plays, discover how to bring on a COO into your company with the least disruption, and avoid common problems before they arrive. Once again, it's CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to grab your copy today. There's no need to go it alone. We're in this together. Now back to the show. So you talked a little bit about about the fact that you were an agency CEO, and um, what do you think you picked up from running the agency, and what kind of an agency was it back then? So I usually explain that I had a Christmas tree full of cool stuff that we sold to people um, in the first eight years, which was how I raked up about 200,000 euros in debt in the first eight years. So that was um, the experience. I hired, fired, got interns, people in the first eight years, and I messed up a lot. I've I've been a salesperson for most of my career, so I was really good at selling. I was a very shitty operator. So I brought them in at the front, they dropped out in the back, and they only paid half their bill, right? So um, that meant that I was growing a team and the bills weren't getting paid. I raked up a ton of debt. I learned how to manage cash flow, how to read, how to do books, um, how to operate, how to set up systems that also require, you know, apparently a software doesn't solve anything. You need to actually use it and get your team to use it. And to do that, not just a week into it, but also six months into it. Like those parts of having to become an operator as part of running the business um, led me to finding the right operator 10 years into it and being able to sell it 12 years into it. So the stuff I've learned from finance to, um, being smart about how to create revenue opportunities that are not inside the box. I built eventually an agency that did custom WordPress development for high quality productions for clients. So um, uh, projects ranged from 15 to 30K in euros. We had retainers and service fees that came with that as well. So I built it to be a somewhat recurring business, which brought the valuation up. And being a boutique agency like that, we ended up with just five people on staff, but did some really cool stuff with the company. Um, allowed me to eventually sell it to a group of investors that uh, bundled up a bunch of agencies into a into a more broad portfolio of services. Interesting. So I want to ask about um, two parts to that. The first one is how do companies, if if we're like a you know Fred's manufacturing company and we want to hire a digital agency. How should we go about doing that properly? Where do companies screw up picking an agency? That's a good question. So there's two parts I think are very important. One is who's going to run it after you're done. So if you're going to go with a custom production, that means you're always going to be dependent on the person that built it for you. And I know I sold WordPress productions as, well, you can go to anyone, but you also need to go to someone to get work done because it's still a tech setup. 
Yeah. If you're going to go with something more standard, that's just content management, like a standard production system, that's probably a lot easier. But what I learned is look at who you have in the business that is actually going to do it. Make them the biggest contributor to making a decision whether it's the right solution or not, because they need to do the job of keeping that going. If they're not able to do it, that bill is going to stack up rather quickly because you need to go back to the agency to do a bunch of stuff. So that's number one. Who's going to actually run it after you've gone through that whole spiel of getting that all built out? The second is portfolio. So I usually went off of design first. Like for us, design was the most important part because you can put thought into actual customer acquisition and, and positioning of a company. If their portfolio does not reflect some thought in terms of how to position a business and how to do design work, then they're just going to build a template for you and there's no thought put into that and you shouldn't pay more than five figures for it. Interesting. All right. So, because I think we so many companies screw that up. They tend to take the first referral that comes along and they're like, okay, I'm going to use that agency and it, it never works out the way it's supposed to. It's almost like like hiring people, which leads me to the question of, you, you said that you've really started to build some some skill sets around picking people. What do you think you've learned there and what are your processes for you know interviewing and selecting people now? So it's interesting. My wife's um, a disc consultant. So she taught me a thing or two about communication profiles, which has been a very, very key contributing factor to me picking the right people and understanding team dynamics. You may have all the right types of minds in the room, but if no one's able to bring that across or simplify it or elaborate well enough or create the structure to do it, you're not getting anywhere. So for me, that communication profile later, we adopted Colby as the second stage of that. So not just communication, but now also how do you actually work and how do you um, divide your energy throughout the day? For me, that type of, especially in a remote business like ours, I can't sit down across the table and read someone's posture. Like it's really hard for me to read a person without sitting at the same table. I need to do it through a screen. So these, these uh, systems have helped us do that a little bit more effectively. And I learned to say no to a lot of people. Um, I hire too quickly, especially when I just joined the business here. The best hires I've made were the people that went through multiple stages of hiring. Um, I think we're at a three to four to five stage hiring process now. We need to be really freaking thorough to get the right people on board. Because again, we're a small enough company where one person is going to make or break it. And I have the responsibility to my company and my people to bring the right person on board. It's not the right person. I'm going to break their company, right? So um, that being thorough about that has been very important. What do you do in the stage where you find someone and you feel like you really like them right away, but you know you've got to go through the process? I still go through the process. So when I I got it wrong once, and it flushed out through the process, where. I basically got into stage two or three of our hiring process, picked up on a person that I thought was really interesting. And I said, look, I think you're the, cult the right person for a culture fit. So I'm just going to fast track into this. And I thought, wait, we made an agreement on this as a team. So let's, you know what, let me get you into a call later this afternoon. Let's just have that conversation, which turned out to be a bit of an awkward conversation, probably enough. Um, and then... We did go to stage two and three, and it turns out that the person was full of shit. It happens, right? And that's where I learned I don't know it all. I can't see it all. And we put this in place. Again, like the best 
results I got were not through effort, but through structure. This structure is put in place to flush this out. I need to use it. So I'd love to fast track people through it. And I've seen plenty of stories about people saying, yeah, if you got the right person, you got the right person. Yeah, I'm still not convinced that they're the right person. Just, you know, that's love at first sight. Um, not a believer. <laughs> so not a believer in love at first sight. You and your your wife split up at one point. And then you then I think you became love at second sight. You swiped, you swiped right. Me and the missus have been together for now 12 years with a little break in between. We'll usually tell people we um, got on a bit of a rocky start the first couple of years. She got pregnant pretty quickly. We were pretty young and pretty stupid. Dove right into it. Didn't get a lot of time to really get to know each other. And we just got straight into parenthood, which was tough. I, I started the business at the same time. You know, I thought that was a great idea. That's brutal. There's no chance. And I found that out a couple of years into the relationship. So um, there was still a lot of love in the relationship, but not a lot of circumstances to allow us to actually show that. I think that's the best way of putting it. So we decided to split up, take some time for uh, for ourselves. And that was not a maybe later type of conversation. That was a that was it type of conversation. Um, so we went our own ways. We did shared parenthood for a while. Saw other people. Uh, <laughs> two, two and a half years in, I was swiping right too much on Tinder. And then her profile came up. And I was like, well, that's a good picture of you all. Screw it. Um, which is actually a very big pun. So let's not make that one. But my um, right. Turns out she also did that before I did it. And we, and we got to chatting. I said, hey, look, you know, I'll, I'll be forward. I've got a couple of kids sleeping upstairs, but I'm pretty sure they won't notice if you come over. Like, you want to come over an hour or two? And she said, I'll see you in 30 minutes. And now we've got two more kids. So, you know, it's worked out. I'm really happy for you. It's it's a it's a tough, tough, tough. Kids are hard, um, especially in the early three, four years of age. They're really hard, and and marriage is hard, and running a business is hard. Um, so I'm really glad that that you guys did that. It's wonderful. So congrats. I'm I'm curious what what you do now to keep a good relationship as a you know, a busy exec as a busy CLO. I mean, I hear from a lot of our CLO Alliance members that they are, they feel overworked. They feel stressed out. They feel like they're working crazy hours. And I can't think, but feel like that's going to affect their personal lives too. What do you do to make sure that your personal life isn't taking a backseat? That's a good question. So moving to Canada was a big move for us because I didn't realize how much effort and time I put into the business throughout the week. So I'm not talking working hours. I'm talking about what I'm putting into the business, which means lack of sleep, catching up on lack of sleep over the weekend, stuff like that. We talk about that a lot uh, between me and the missus. She's, um, I mean, I'm a direct Dutch person. She's like the most direct type of Dutch person you can find. So if she's going to call bullshit, she'll do that within the second, which is great. Been a great way to have a relationship between the two of us because we don't take shit from each other, which is great. Um, so if something's up, we talk about it. I'll, I'll know exactly when something's up. I'll have that conversation and vice versa. And we both consciously made a commitment to divide up efforts and know exactly what to expect from each other. So 
if we don't follow through on what we agreed on, we're going to ask each other, look, we made a commitment. Here's the balance we're looking for. And here's how we're supposed to be doing it. You didn't follow through or I didn't follow through. And we're going to make up for that. Which sounds a bit like a business transaction, but it's the most practical way for us to get just through the week. I've got four kids that need breakfast and lunch for the day that need to get to school and picked up again. They might bump their head and need to get picked up. Like all those scenarios have been talked about and we know exactly who does what. When I look at my day, there's some level of flexibility, but I've got literal, like I've got two days a week where I can run over. If it's more than two, I stop. Like and getting those types of very stupid, simple rules has helped create some bandwidth for when I do need to put some extra effort into it, but also when I need to stop myself and say, this was enough for the week. Do you, do you find that um, working from home is a good thing or do you think it's a bad thing? We didn't work from home until we moved here. I had an office like 10 minutes uh, from my house, which uh, I prefer that the time because it kept me more focused and less distracted. Um, and I didn't have an actual office space uh, in my house back in the Netherlands. Here, I've got an office space in the house where I can close the door. And now I prefer this because I can still see my kids come into the house around three. They'll be in front of here. I've got like glass in the door. So they'll come up here and knock on the door, just wave because they know they can't come in when dad's working. But I'm still going to wave and smile at them and see that they're here and acknowledge that they're here. And um, being able to do that as like those quick little minutes of them being able to come home and see dad being there has been great. Yeah, it's powerful. How old are your kids right now? Uh, my son's 11, hitting puberty pretty hard. Uh, <laughs> got a daughter and nine and we've got two twin girls of five years old okay so you're out of the woods you're you're at a, you're at a stage where you've got you can have normal conversations they can pick up their own shit they can even the five-year-olds can carry their food to the table and yeah i think from time to time the five-year-olds do a better job than the nine-year-old you know so we're true story that. they will start doing a better job than your 11-year-old son too they teenage boys just become useless at 13 it's terrible that's weird. Um, Looking forward to it. Now, you, you mentioned saying no in the interview process. How do you find you are saying no to employees? Like, I, I find that as the leaders, it's hard to say no because we want to empower them and feel good about all their ideas. But when are you there? So here, I had this conversation with uh, Mikhail, my CEO, a couple of weeks ago. I've been always pushing the idea of inclusivity. I want to be inclusive in our decision making and our planning. I'm actually stepping away from that for next year. And that might sound like an um, unpopular decision, but what I've found is inclusivity is also slow as hell. So it means we need to talk about a whole bunch of shit all the time. Most of the time, we're still doing it anyway, we found based on some of the decisions and the meetings we've had. And we could have probably gotten more done if we just went ahead and do it and then mess it up and then just get back on it and try something else. So. We're going to run with experimentation first instead of inclusivity next year to uh, like, if it's a good idea, show me instead of let's talk about it and then write up a small business case, like effort and resources and outcome. If there is no clear outcome, that's going to contribute to Cabo 2023. Not worth it. There's a theme there. I think you want to go to Cabo. There's, um, you mentioned earlier, and I think it was before we got on the show that the, the, the CEO of your business knew you and kind of coached you while you were the agency owner. And over the, the period of time that he coached you, you then exited the business. And then he said, hey, why don't you come work with me? 
What do you think he saw in you that made him want to bring you on as a COO when you had been the entrepreneur? He joked about about it numerous times where he said, I never hired you for your background. I hired you for your personality. I need someone to call bullshit when he sees bullshit, which is pretty much a trait that I picked up. Um, I maybe being a Dutchman or just being myself. I don't know. But I don't think it's just that. Obviously, I'm pretty sure I bring more to the table than just some communication skills. I think what he saw is I'm pretty good at tying stuff together and make it work quickly. So um, I have a tendency to overthink from time to time, but because I'm conscious of it, I stop myself quickly enough to just run with it and try it. And But I'm thorough enough to not break it on the third or fifth iteration, which is where um, Mikhail built this company bootstrapped with that same mentality. But he knew that in step three, he was going to fall through because he's not the person that's going to follow through on how to then take it from step three to 10. And we follow this um, framework called 1310, which is taught by um, Michael Ho, a guy that um, has been working with us for a long time. Uh, he crafted this framework to help startups think through when to push and when to just go. And one means let's just test it. Three means it's working. And 10 means now we got to make it a process. But until we hit the 10th iteration, shut up and go do it. Like it. I, I've, I've done a lot of system stuff around that where it's I, I do the first system on a post-it note. And then I move it from a post-it note to a Word doc, like a Google Doc or a Google Sheet. And then after we're using it, then I'll move it into something like, you know, a system like where I'm putting in the process street or process, you know, sweet process or something. But so many, so often people try to get into the the documentation of it at such a level and they don't even know if it's working yet. It drives me bonkers. Validated first, right? That's the whole point. Well, let's go back to the, uh, the 21, 22 year old, six foot six Dutchman. What advice would you give the young Kevin Beef Tank just starting out in his career? Maybe you know it to be true today, but you wish you knew when you were 21, 22. I started working when I was 18, finished school, told my parents I wasn't going to do a follow-up education and just run with it. Then I did take a year of education and definitely found out I wasn't going to do more of it. So I think especially before I'm 37 now, in my 20s, I had such a, I felt such pressure to prove myself show the world that I could probably do it. I'll figure it out and just throw it at me. I'll figure it out, which has gotten me to where I am now. It's also a tough type of mentality to grow through because it wasn't ambition. It was more uh, having to prove myself every step along the way, which in hindsight, I think is more detrimental than it should have been because my ambition is what is fueling me now. I probably would tell myself, Stop proving yourself and use that ambition for you, not for someone else. Use the ambition for you? For myself. Yeah. Instead yeah. Of someone else. I love it. Kevin Beeftink, the COO for Funalytics. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second Crime Podcast. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.